Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Julia Galef is the host of the popular Rationally Speaking podcast. She's the co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality. And her 2016 TED Talk titled, Why You Think You're Right, Even If You're Wrong, has been viewed over 4 million times. And today we're going to chat about her new must-read book, The Scout Mindset. Why some people see things clearly and others don't. Julia, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be here. It's great to have you. I love your book. So I'm going to start with the title. It's an interesting title, Scout Mindset. And you define what a scout mindset is. You start off the book. So can you elaborate and and fill us in? What exactly is a scout mindset? Yeah, so a scout mindset, that's my term for the motivation to see things as they are and not as you wish they were. So basically just being like trying to be intellectually honest and objective and just curious about what's actually true. And the term, it's part of this kind of framing metaphor of the book in which I say that humans are very often by default in what I call the soldier mindset in which your motivation is to defend your ideas and your beliefs against any evidence that might threaten them. And so scout mindset is an alternative to that. And I, I argue that we should be shifting from soldier mindset towards scout mindset. And I talk about how and why. So I 100% agree. And talk about timing. This is something <laughs> that, that concerns me. I think concerns a lot of people. We, we live in a world that is very polarized. And where I'm going to go next is social media. And yeah. social media is often a huge echo chamber. And in general, many of us tend to pay attention or also served because of the algorithm, the news outlets, the experts, the people that we agree with. Right. So h- how can we escape that? How can we think for ourselves and not fall into group think, which I think is at the core of w- what you're trying to get at with Scout Mindset. So. Mm-hmm. How do we get there? So it's interesting. Some people valiantly try to escape their echo chamber or escape their filter bubble. They really like, there are a lot of people who are sincerely trying to do this, but the way in which people tend to go about it, I think is it tends to backfire. Like it doesn't work very well. And sometimes it actually makes things worse. And so the typical way that people go about trying to escape their echo chamber is they just read or listen to whatever kind of the most prominent source is on the other side. Or sometimes they'll engage with disagreement from whoever happens to, you know, post on their Facebook thread or comment on, like respond to them on Twitter, disagreeing with them. So they'll feel kind of obliged to engage with that disagreement. And the problem with this strategy is that, well, first I should say the evidence shows the strategy doesn't actually work all that well. There have been a number of experiments, some formal and some informal, where uh, people were asked to follow a Twitter bot from the other side of the political aisle. Like if you were a liberal, you had to follow a, a bot that retweeted tweets from conservative political leaders or thought leaders, and vice versa. If you were a conservative, uh, you had to listen to the liberals. And at the end of this experiment, the result was that people, the conservatives, had become even more conservative after listening to liberals, and the liberals 
had become even more liberal, although it was a smaller effect. And this is this this was the one sort of formal study I'm thinking of. But this matches what I've seen just informally when people I know have tried to like liberals have tried to watch Fox News in hopes of having their mind expanded or something. And it just doesn't work that well. They just come away like irritated and frustrated and saying things like this is even worse than I thought. <laughs> like this is like even more grating and wrong than I expected. You wanna yeah, comment? yeah. My wife and I actually tried to do this a lot. I've talked about this in the podcast around the election. We we would watch, we would do the rounds at nine o'clock news of, of mm-hmm. every major news outlet on, on both extremes. Oh, and good we just, for you. How'd it go? Well, it, it it was interesting, and we walked away with, I guess, a feeling of. Oh, great. Like, I, I understand what's happening here, but in terms of a solution, in terms of the unity that we desperately need, and then post-election and yeah. where we are today, in terms of the healing that we desperately need, I'm, I, I, I walk away being perplexed of how are we going to ever get there right, right. with it both sides? Like, I'm aware, and I, and, I, and I kind of view myself like we're kind of in the middle and we're trying to you know, I think it's one thing to understand the different points of view, but when, when we're so far apart, you have a great line in the book, our country's so divided, so polarized, and you say, quote unquote, the truth doesn't always lie in the center. And I think this goes, this isn't just politics. Right. It, it's, in our, it's in our world, the wellness world. And, and I'm paleo versus I'm vegan, and we'll get into belief, right. belief systems and how we self-identify. But it's one thing to look at all sides and, and try to understand the information, but then the next the next action step is well, how do we how do we unite? Right. <laughs> yeah, that the point about the truth isn't always in the center. I thought that was an important point to make, just because that's often a that's often a failure mode that I think people fall into when they are trying to compensate for polarization and bias. Is they figure well, it must be the truth must be like in in the middle between the two extremes, and that's not like a terrible heuristic like often there is at least a little bit of truth to both sides but but more often than not there's one side is more right than the other or both sides are really wrong and like really missing something important and so actually the truth is maybe not even on that spectrum but involving a totally different way of looking at things and so I was making that point just to say like the goal should be to to be unbiased as unbiased as you can and as objective as as you can in evaluating both sides and not favoring one side over the other. But sometimes that unbiased investigation will, you know, lead to the conclusion that one side actually is more right than the other. And you should be open to that possibility. So you Um, mentioned bias. Let's go there. How how can we better understand our own biases, our own stories, our, our narratives that we tell ourselves? Well, so I'll, I'm going to finish my thought from a moment ago. Sure, about, sorry. Well, it's very related to your, to this next question. So I think I'll combine the two. So I was kind of identifying the problem that when we try to listen to the other side, we, it often backfires. We just get irritated and feel more despairing, as you put it, about the polarization in the country and the difficulty of bridging that gap. And so what I advocate instead and what I try to practice is, yes, like, seek out different perspectives and engage with criticism, but try to prioritize listening to people with whom you have at least a little bit of common ground. So people who you disagree with, like maybe on some very important things like religion or politics, but there's at least some just enough overlap that you, you know, feel open to them and are going to have some ability to communicate. So something like a liberal watching Fox News is a terrible approach because Fox News is, it's optimized not for communicating across boundaries. 
they're optimized for playing to their base. Like that's why they're so popular. And they're and part of that process is making the other side look bad. And the other side is you, the liberal listening to Fox News. And so that's like the exact opposite of what you want to do if you're actually hoping to learn something or expand your mind. Instead, I advocate trying to talk to people who maybe they're overall conservative and you're liberal, but they just strike you as unusually thoughtful or reasonable or they strike you as nice people like someone you know at work or a friend of yours or even just a Twitter or Facebook friend who, you know, is conservative. But you've you've noticed that, oh, they actually seem they seem to be like a nice person. I've seen them respond reasonably before. Those are the people who you should be list- following, listening to, and even just asking, like, what do you think I'm missing here? Or what do you think I'm wrong about? Or which points from your side do you think have merit and why? Uh, and those are the conversations that actually sometimes do produce a shift in your perspective, as opposed to listening to the most bombastic people on Fox News. And does that I, make sense? It does. And I think... You know, to me, when I think about news, I, look, I think both sides are guilty. And I think we just, they both sides, whether it's CNN, Fox, whatever you watch, I think everyone, every news outlet plays a role. Because I, I do think playing to the base is a good business. Yeah, it absolutely and, is. And with that said, is there something about us as human beings where we just don't really want? Everyone talks about this idea of maybe there's going to be a new news outlet or a new party or that's really in the middle. Like as human beings, do we really want that? Is that even a possibility? Uh, Well, whether we want it and whether it's a possibility are two different things. I I would say that we mostly don't want that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The act of listening to someone play to your your biases or your pre-commitments, your pre-existing beliefs that it's a very satisfying and i i say that as someone i experienced that myself and so even though i'm a strong advocate of scout mindset that doesn't mean that i don't feel the temptation of having my biases played to and i think there's a number of reasons for that partly it's just partly it's less cognitive effort to listen to things that match what you already agree with there's less having to reconsider things there's less like having to do the work of reaching for a charitable interpretation of what they're saying and not strawmanning them, that does take more cognitive effort. And then, of course, there's an emotional side as well, where we kind of automatically sort ourselves into tribes. And sometimes those tribes are just demographic, like your country or your where you're from or your race. And then but often the tribes are about your beliefs. And so when someone plays to your side, it's like they're cheering for your tribe and you cheer with them. And it feels really good. That's like a very primal urge. Whereas when someone is going against your tribe's beliefs, it's like they're stomping on your flag or something. It's like very insulting. And so overcoming that instinctive emotional reaction takes a lot of cognitive and emotional effort as well. So it is harder and less immediately rewarding, but I believe it's worth it. It reminds me so much of bad decisions I made in high school or in college. Alcohol-fueled testosterone where you have a a group of guys who are are drinking and they're having a good time and someone says, all right, let's do this terrible idea. And and the next guy says, that's amazing. And the next thing you know, you got 20 (laughs) people saying like, yes, let's do the terrible thing. And in retrospect, (laughs) deep down, most of us in the group knew, hey, this is probably a terrible idea, right. but I'm just not going to raise my hand and say, hey, guys, this is a terrible idea. Right. We shouldn't do this terrible thing. It's just let's go. And I feel like fast forward to today, that's often social media where there's something terrible going on. And, I, and you know, maybe there's alcohol, maybe it's not people are tweeting <laughs> drunk at home or what have you. But 
the risk to reward is not in your favor for, for trying to step in and raise your hand and say, this thing's terrible. And I just go back to this bigger question of like healing, unity, having uh, a productive debate. And are we, I hope we're capable, like where, where do we go? I, I love your analogy because not only do I think it's a really good analogy, but I think the problem that we've been talking about with people only listening to their own sides and jumping on, you know, bandwagons on social media that may not be very well substantiated. I think that problem is actually substantially worse than the your example from your earlier in your life with the testosterone fueled. Yes, um, we, we only we only affected like twenty people versus tens of oh, thousands or not millions. Well, in that way too, actually. But but I was going to say that one other thing that makes it so easy to just let yourself get swept up in groupthink is that the stakes for you are not really, how do you suffer as an individual if you you know strongly believe something about politics that's wrong? That has very little repercussion on your you know own health or well-being or your financial situation. It has repercussions for the country, but you know, it's very different from the situation that you were describing where like, Maybe you guys all decide to like, I don't know, walk on the train tracks at night or something, or you decide to like jump off a building or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what you were doing with your alcohol and testosterone. But those actually, those decisions are in some respects easier to avoid because they have very real and concrete stakes for you as a person. Whereas politics, there's no, that check on bad decisions doesn't exist because it's all kind of abstract and you might as well just indulge in the kind of like tribal group thing that feels so good and helps like affirm your loyalty to your tribe because what's the cost to you, you know? So when you mentioned tribe, I'll bring it back to our world, the wellness world, and this idea that belief systems can easily become our identities. We see this all the time. There are people who go through something with their personal health and they feel terrible and they feel shunned and often it comes down to, to diet. They embrace a certain diet, whether it's vegan or paleo or what have yeah. you. And all of a sudden they feel great and it changes their life. And mm. they want to shout from the rooftops and it becomes in some way th- their identity where you, mm. you you just go to people's handles pale- on, on social media, paleo, vegan, etc. And I don't think that's a that's necessarily a bad thing. But and you talk about this notion of holding our identities lightly. Yeah. So what when does it become unhealthy in terms of, you know, it's important to have an identity. It's important to have a tribe. But Mm -hmm. when does it cross over to a place that's not necessarily good for our well-being? Right. So just being excited about something and passionate about it and wanting to spread the word to people, that alone, there's no problem with that. The distinction, like where it crosses over into the belief has become part of your identity is when, you know, any criticism of the belief that you're passionate about or the, you know, lifestyle choice you're passionate about, any criticism of it or any dissent from it, you feel like a personal attack on you. So you, well, maybe actually a good example to illustrate the distinction is one that like it's it's close to home for me because I know a lot of people in these categories. But so love of science is, I think, a wonderful thing, like feeling passionate about the belief that science is the best way to learn about the world and it deserves a lot of respect and a lot of funding. I'm pro-science. That's one thing. Um, and I think just on its own, that's like a perfectly fine way to think. But some people cross from cross over a line from that 
way of thinking into what I would call having pro science as part of their identity. So these are the people that like wear t-shirts with sort of pro science slogans emblazoned on them, like science, it works, bitches. Or I'm trying to remember other examples. I don't know. That's one example, which again is not, that's not necessarily a bad thing on its own, but it is, it's kind of correlated with people who take science, who like get defensive on behalf of science. So maybe a, a more direct example of that would be if you go to the the Facebook page for, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your podcast, but sure, say, go ahead, go yeah, for it. So the Facebook page is called I fucking love science or IFLS for short. And it, it's like a clubhouse for people who have the pro science flag that they want to wave proudly. And so there's a lot of stuff on there, like defending science against its critics and just kind of overreaching in that process. So like, in one thread I saw, one person pointed out what I think is a pretty inarguable point, that scientists are human and they have biases and sometimes they like confirm the things that they expected to find or wanted to find. I think this is clearly true and it doesn't mean that science is worthless or anything, it's just a fact. But people in this thread took umbrage at that and they were like, no, that's not how science works. No, period, never, period. So I think that's a good example of how like, it's fine and good to be pro-science, but if that crosses over the line into being unwilling to consider even like very reasonable points like against science, so to speak, then you're in that un- unhealthy territory where being pro-science is part of your identity and distorting your thinking. Well, also it becomes problematic if you look at all the innovation, the amazing innovation we've had in science over the past hundred or so years. It came from a place of, from a contrarian point of view, if you will. Someone came in who was an outsider, who had a different point of view, a different way of doing things, was maybe shunned. And then all of a sudden, wow, we've got an amazing discovery. And I think science, and we've seen it with like lots of issues with COVID. Science also, I think, groupthink is a problem that's not just exclusive to social media. I think it also comes into play with science. and, And how do you have, you could have a dissenting point of view that's grounded in science, but doesn't necessarily agree with another scientist over here. That's part right. of like, that's important. Right, right. Yeah. And so a big pillar of the book and the, the scout mindset, if you will, is self-awareness Yeah. and judgment. So how do we develop self-awareness? How do we develop good judgment? And in my mind, part of the developing process is understanding being self-aware of your self-awareness <laughs> so like understanding how to do it well you mean? yeah or just where yeah. you are in the spectrum and so yeah. h- how do you think about that process yeah so i do think this is really important because everyone kind of thinks of themselves as a scout well not everyone some people actually are proud to be soldiers and they're like no i don't change my mind i never change my mind that's sort of a point of pride for them but you know There are tons of people who feel like, yes, of course I'm open-minded, of course I care about evidence, of course I'm a critical thinker, and just that alone actually isn't, like just the fact that you feel like you're a scout is not itself very good evidence that you actually are a scout. And (laughs) I I kind of learned this, well, relearned this the hard way when I was researching for my book. I would find like a very promising scout-like quote and I'd be like, oh, this is great. I should follow up and find this person and interview them or learn about them. And then I would discover like, oh God, this person's not scout-like at all. But they had this quote where they talk about the importance of changing your mind. Like one example, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but it was something about it's really important to be intellectually honest and change your mind when the evidence warrants it. And I got all excited. Uh, And then I read the source of the quote. 
you probably won't be able to guess who it was, but the speaker of this wonderful scout-like quote was Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole so, other, we should have a, to me, that's like a mental health discussion, but we'll, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I feel like there's something going on there. His mental health started going haywire, yeah. but, but even so, my point is just that lots of people feel like they're scouts, but like the number of people who are actually practicing scout mindset is, I think, much smaller. So I think part of, an important part of self-awareness is paying attention to your actual track record. Like, how do I actually behave? Because that may not match your mental picture of who you are and what, how you behave. So, uh, for example, some behavioral signs that I think are good to pay attention to are just like, can I think of examples in recent memory where I, you know, recognized that someone else was right and told them so? Or can I think of recent examples in which I proved myself wrong about something? Like, you know, suppose I, I had some political opinion and I did some research and discovered I was wrong or or even you know at work perhaps I I had some strong opinion about what we should like the, the strategy we should enact and then I like talked to more people or ran the numbers again and decided actually maybe no I think that's not true so looking for kind of examples in which you demonstrated scout mindset is I think a, a much clearer sign than just do I feel like I'm the kind of person who would have an open mind that's kind of what separates the wheat from the chaff, I think. So it sounds like a big part is just really being able to understand and identify situations where you were wrong and being able to admit you were wrong. And then I guess yeah, the, I mean, that's one. And then maybe having part, a conversation yeah. about it, too. Yeah, I mean, technically, you don't have to like scout mindset doesn't act technically require that you tell other people that you were wrong. But I do find in practice, that's like a pretty clear sign of someone who prioritizes the truth over their own ego is being willing to, to say to someone else, oh yeah, you were right and I was wrong. Um, it's humility. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite examples of that property, if I can share it, is a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote to Ulysses Grant during the Civil War. And he wrote it because Ulysses Grant had, he had executed a military maneuver that Lincoln had been confident would fail. And he was he thought Grant shouldn't do it. But Grant went, went ahead and did it anyway. And it succeeded brilliantly. And they the Union recaptured the city of Vicksburg, which is of a lot of strategic importance in the war. And so Lincoln was you know, pleasantly surprised. And he wrote this letter to Grant, which was then published in which he said, my dear general, I wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. And it just it was so lovely. He didn't have to do that, but he just. He was the kind of person who really valued intellectual honesty and telling people when their judgment had been right and his was wrong. And so it was very inconsistent with his, or sorry, it was very consistent with his general way of doing things. So I, I, I love that story. I think Grant, for some reason, Grant didn't get a lot of credit until after, after the war. No one, but, but Lincoln and Grant were two amazing leaders. And when we think of leaders, we think of the importance of confidence. And you talk about that in the yeah. book. And you also talk right. about avoiding overconfidence. Right. And so can you distinguish between confidence and overconfidence and how we can better look at that fine line, if you will? Right. So overconfidence, it just refers to having more certainty in your beliefs or your decisions than is actually justified. And so if you're, if you have like very little evidence but you say you're 100% sure of something, that's, you're probably overconfident. And overconfidence is actually explicitly encouraged by many people. Like this is common wisdom if you read articles or books on how to be a strong leader or how to be an influential expert or pundit. They'll often say like, you should just state your opinions with certainty. Never show any doubt, never say 
you're not sure or you were wrong because that's not what people want to hear. They want certainty. A clear, confident yes or no, definitely or definitely not, is just much more satisfying to people than a more nuanced answer. And so this is the explicit advice you often hear. And I, before writing my book, I'd kind of assumed that was true. And I just thought, well, that's an unfortunate trade-off in the world that you can't be a, an influential leader and still be intellectually honest and nuanced. And then I did a bunch of research for the book and came away thinking, actually, this isn't really true. There's not nearly as much of a conflict as we think there is between being an influential leader on the one hand and being an intellectually honest scout on the other. So one of the key distinctions that I think people are missing is that there are two different kinds of confidence. And, and I think people are kind of conflating them together. So on the one hand, there's what I would call epistemic confidence, which is about it's what I've been referring to, like how much certainty do you have that you're right? And then on the other hand, there's what I call social confidence which just refers to like how, how much charisma do you have? Do you speak in a confident tone of voice? Do you have confident posture? Do you seem at ease in social situations and talking to groups and things like that? Do you like go out and take charge and make things happen? And social confidence is important for being an influential leader. If you seem like really like unsure of yourself and awkward and hesitant, then that does like, it does make people less interested in what you're saying or less inclined to follow you, that's true. But epistemic confidence, like like expressing uncertainty, saying things like, well, we can't, I can't guarantee that this business plan is going to pay off. That's fine. That has actually very little impact on whether people want to follow you as long as you have social confidence. And so I found a bunch of really interesting examples of influential leaders who had plenty of social confidence, but also felt free to express low epistemic confidence when they felt that was justified. So one example I talk about is Jeff Bezos who I think not a lot of people know that when he was starting out, like when he was first founding Amazon, he explicitly thought to himself, what is the probability that Amazon is going to succeed? Or the company that would become Amazon, it wasn't called that at the time. And his estimate was about 30%, which that's very low compared to how most founders think and talk about their companies. And Bezos was very explicit with the media, with his early investors. He would say, I think there's about a 70% chance you're going to lose all your money if you invest in Amazon. And he was clear that this was not because he thought his business idea was bad or that he was stupid or anything like that. He was just like, no, it's very hard to predict which companies are going to succeed ahead of time. Like no one can predict that really well. And it's, there's a lot of luck involved. So even if you're doing like a really excellent job, which I think we will, we can't guarantee we're going to succeed. And that's just basic intellectual honesty right there. But it's still not the kind of thing founders usually say. So he said this regularly, and yet clearly he was still a very influential and persuasive person. Like he persuaded people to invest in Amazon. He persuaded people to work for Amazon. It's because he had lots of social confidence. He was very comfortable speaking to groups. He'd like done his homework on the market. And so he was he could speak confidently about his plan, even though he wasn't claiming it was going to be 100% a success. So I think that's like a nice case study in how you can be very influential without having to sacrifice your ability to see things clearly and recognize uncertainty where it exists. So you mentioned Bezos. You also talk about Elon Musk in the book yeah. in the context of both of them, su success, risk, making bets, and for someone listening who's ambitious, wants to succeed, whatever that looks like for them, who wants to do great things, who wants to maybe change the world, what can we learn from Musk and, and Bezos? Yeah, so Elon Musk, I think, is another good example of of one facet of scout mindset. And I'm, I'm not going to claim he's a perfect scout in all ways. He's like the opposite certainly. of Bezos in so many ways. They don't. He's, I don't think they like each other, but... 
I, I don't claim to know about that, but, but they do have a lot of differences. I agree with that. But I, I want to give people credit for the things they deserve credit for, even if I think they have failed They're both brilliant. They're both brilliant. Yeah. No, I agree with that. So, yeah. So the specific way that I want to praise Elon is it's related to what I was saying about Bezos. So they're both kind of probabilistic thinkers. And Elon, like, like Jeff Bezos, thought to himself ahead of time before he was like as he was founding Tesla and as he was founding SpaceX, he thought to himself, what is the probability that this is going to succeed? And Elon's estimate for both of his companies was about 10%, which is even lower than Bezos's 30%. And so obviously this is kind of surprising to people when they interview Elon about his companies for him to say, like, I think the most likely outcome is failure. Like I give us a 10% shot of success. And you can see interviews where the interviewer is like, what, then why are you doing it? Why would you start a company if you thought you were probably going to fail. And so this is the key. What Elon says in those conversations is, if something is important enough, it's worth doing, even if the likeliest outcome is failure. Um, and if you read some of his other comments on his motivations, it's clear that the way he's thinking about it, like the thing that's motivating him to, to try this risky bet of starting an unusual company, is that he's thinking in terms of expected value. And so expected value is just a basic concept from probability theory where Essentially, you multiply the probability of success times the value of success, plus the probability of failure times the value of failure. And so obviously, when you're starting a company, those numbers don't have clear-cut definitions, like you don't know for sure what the exact probability is uh, or what the exact value would be. But you can kind of very roughly estimate. And so this is what Elon did. He thought to himself, like, how good would it be if, if SpaceX succeeded? Well. It would be amazing. Like his goal for SpaceX is to help humanity become an interplanetary species. And so success would be fantastic from his perspective. And how bad would failure be? And he thought to himself and was like, I'd be okay. Like he wouldn't be personally ruined. He could still go on to start other companies. And he also figured even if we fail, we could still probably make a little bit of progress. We could still probably move the goal point post a little bit and pass the baton to someone else. So it wouldn't have been totally a waste. And so if you think about it, like a 10% chance of an amazing outcome and a 90% chance of a, a tolerable outcome is not actually that bad of a deal. Like that's a pretty good bet. And, and if you make a number of those bets throughout your lifetime, the chance of at least one of them paying off is actually not that bad, even if each one is only 10%. So, so I think this is important because Elon's thinking in terms of expected value is a nice illustration of how you can be you can be realistic with yourself about the odds of success in any given endeavor and still be motivated as long as you're thinking in terms of expected value and you're not thinking in terms of like, this has to be guaranteed to succeed or else I don't feel motivated to do it at all, which is the common way people think about motivation. Well, does that make sense? I'm sorry. I know it that does. Was a lot it does. Stuff. It does. And it's interesting because I, I, I think there's this tension between and I think so many entrepreneurs, myself included, experience this where you're okay with failure. It doesn't scare you. But on the other hand, you're, you fear failure and it's what drives you. Right. And it is that competitive edge and it's the passion for the project or the product or whatever it is you're, you're working on that ultimately pushes you to, to the edge because there is no failure. Failure is not an option in your mind, even though failure is you know, not so bad, you'd be okay, you recognize that, but it's also this fear, which so many entrepreneurs have and what ultimately makes them successful. And I think it's also interesting when you say 10 and 30%, I'm thinking, well, yeah. how much of success is not seeing your venture in rose-colored glasses and this right. balance of being a a big 
strategic visionary type thinker but also being pragmatic right i mean that's the really the tough line to walk right because on the one hand you have to be afraid enough of failure that you're motivated to try to avoid it and achieve success but on the other hand you do want to have like have come to terms with the possibility of failure so it's not entirely unthinkable because otherwise you're just going to be too scared to take any of the risks that you have to take in order to have a shot at success because if you think failure is just would be completely unacceptable then any risk that has some possibility of failure is just is paralyzing and so elon actually talks about this explicitly he says one thing that helps with fear. He says, I do feel feel fear pretty strongly, contrary to what many people assume about me. But one thing that helps with fear is just accepting the probabilities ahead of time, like, like coming to terms with the fact that it will probably fail. And, you know, that doesn't that then no longer has to be something that you're petrified of. So the way I think about it is that you want to be in a state where that even if your endeavor fails, you will be able to honestly say to yourself, this was a risk. I knew the odds ahead of time. And it was like a bet worth taking. And, you know, I would make the same choice again. Like I would play the same, I would play the same game again. And so even though the odds didn't work out in my favor this time, I can still feel good about my choice and what I did. That's like, that's the mindset in which I think, you know, you can go ahead and do the risky things without the paralyzing fear that you're going to fail. So I think this speaks to our fondness, if you will, for certainty. And we all like certainty, but the reality, especially now in 2021, we live in a very uncertain world. Right. So how do we better deal with uncertainty? And you also talk about the two types of uncertainty in the book. Mm. Right. So I talk about two types of uncertainty in the context of, of being influential and being persuasive, because this is kind of like a different way of looking at it besides the social confidence and epistemic confidence that I talked about earlier, this is a different distinction. I like making distinctions. I think it's a good thing to do. When you're in a position of authority or expertise and you want to to seem like an expert and have people trust you, people often feel like they have to downplay their uncertainty. So I think this is probably a lot of what's going on with COVID over the last year, where there have been a number of very confident proclamations by experts, like public health experts or bioethics experts, and they've had a lot of certainty in them, and they've often turned out to be wrong or incomplete or overstating their case, and which is unfortunate, and I think it damages public trust in science. And I think a big reason people do this is because they feel like they have to speak with certainty to the public or else people won't, won't trust them. People want the certain answers. And so I think this is common wisdom, but I think it's missing something important, which is that there are, as you say, two kinds of uncertainty. And for lack of better words, I call them uncertainty in you the speaker, and uncertainty in the world. And uncertainty in you is the kind of uncertainty where you're just ignorant, like you're lacking experience or expertise. And so you don't know the answer because you just don't have that knowledge. So an inexperienced doctor might say, well, I'm sorry, I don't know what's causing your headache. And maybe a more experienced doctor would know and it would be clear to him, but the, the inexperienced doctor doesn't know because you know, he just doesn't have that knowledge. And that kind of uncertainty is damaging to your credibility as an expert, as it should be. I think that's perfectly fair. Like, if a doctor says, I don't know what's causing your headache, like, it's reasonable for his patients to assume maybe a better doctor would know. But it's also okay if the doctor really doesn't know. I'd rather have a doctor who doesn't know. Oh, who well, it's better it. than pretending to know. <laughs> yes. <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still like, I want to acknowledge that, like, sometimes people claim that, like, well, it's 
of course people don't mind hearing I don't know because they want intellectual honesty. And in a way that's true, but it's also, people also want like useful information. And so if someone says they don't know, that could be because they're being intellectually honest or it could be because they just like not, are not a very good expert. <laughs> so, and people don't know, they don't always know how to distinguish between those two things. So, right, so there's uncertainty in you and that, that will hurt your credibility as an expert. And then there's uncertainty in the world, which is just, the world is, reality is messy. And sometimes we just can't perfectly predict what's gonna happen or we can't, we don't have all the facts and that's just, no one has all the facts. So even the best doctor can't tell you for sure whether your condition is going to get better or get worse. And so all the research that I've looked at suggests that people are actually very receptive to hearing uncertainty when it's made clear to them that this is uncertainty in the world. This is not uncertainty because I'm ignorant. So for example, there are studies of how patients react to doctors who talk about uncertainty. And some of the studies find that patients don't like it and trust the doctors less. And those are the studies in which doctors are saying things like, I'm sorry, I don't know what's causing your headache. But then other studies find that patients actually don't mind it at all when doctors express uncertainty and sometimes even it makes them think better of the doctors and in those studies the doctors are saying things like well i based on all of the research that exists i estimate that there's a 20 30 percent chance that your tumor is malignant and here are the factors that make a difference in breast cancer outcomes and so you have you know this history on your mother's side of the family and so that makes a difference but it's not guaranteed so we can tell you like what the risk factors are and we can tell you i can roughly estimate the probability based on past cases but none of that is a guarantee so that second answer that's like much better than an i don't know like the, in that answer the doctor is showing like an awareness of all of the relevant information and showing that like the relevant information actually merits some amount of uncertainty so this is not just me being ignorant so basically, that's a very long-winded way of saying that as an expert, if you can explain your reasoning and explain why you think this amount of uncertainty is justified, then people will still respect you and trust you as an expert. So the t- I'll come back. The, the title of the book is The Scout Mindset, Why yes. Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. So yes. for someone listening who, who wants to see things clearly, what are the non-negotiables? I want to start to see things clearly. What must I do starting today to begin that process? Well, I would say the most important thing is just to start looking for cases of yourself being in soldier mindset because that, as I say, soldier mindset is this very innate and very universal thing. And so if you don't notice yourself being in soldier mindset, that probably isn't because you're just an exception to humanity. That's probably just because you are not very self-aware. And so it feels paradoxical almost to say that like to become a better scout, you have to notice when you're a soldier, but that is actually the crucial first step in shifting towards scout mindset is being able to notice like, oh, I actually, I'm feeling defensive or to be able to notice, oh, I like, in that moment when I was listening to that person arguing with me, all I was doing was reaching for rebuttals to their argument as opposed to thinking about whether it's possible they might be right. So starting to notice examples like that is I think the most important thing that you can do to be a better scout. And so, you know, for me, that's right. I think of mindfulness meditation. It's the exercise of really being aware of in the moment and it's hard as work. And almost yeah. like the space between we're like, okay, this is me feeling angry. This is me feeling reactive. This is me. Yeah. And it's so hard. It's work. 
I actually considered writing about mindfulness because a bunch of people have told me that they feel a strong connection between mindfulness practice and the kind of self-awareness that I'm talking about, where you notice when you, you know, are not being very objective. And I didn't write about it just because I don't feel like I'm actually, I'm very good at it. I don't have much experience with mindfulness meditation. And so I, it would feel inauthentic, I think, if I, you know, advocated it in the book just because I don't have a lot of experience with it myself. But I bet that it's actually quite helpful based on what, what other people have told me. No, it definitely is. There are a lot of yeah. parallels. So look, as we've talked about, there, there's so much going on in the world. What concerns you? And on the flip side, what excites you? Just about the world in general? Yeah, or just, uh, well, with regards to that, we'll bring it back to the scout mindset. Like, what yeah. was your hope? I, I know that there was a, a why behind the book. And I think yeah. the timing is impeccable. I think we need a book like this. Mm-hmm. And so it goes back to like your hope for the book of like what I'm assuming there were some things concerning you in the world and it led to the why mm-hmm. behind the book and the process. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly concerned about the, the polarization of media and social media that you talked about. And I guess one of my concerns is just that I feel like there's not as easy of a fix for that as a lot of people seem to think. Like I see people talking about solutions like, well, just put labels on misinformation or just like censor people who are lying or sharing false fake news. And I don't feel very optimistic about that solution because I think that the process of sorting out like what actually is true or at least at least like plausible, separating that out from the stuff that's not true is a very difficult and subtle process. And I have difficulty doing it with confidence. I don't really trust any particular governing body or like some department at Facebook to have the final word on what is misinformation and what is true. And I've already seen a bunch of attempts at that process that seem like clumsy and misguided to me. Like, I forget if it was YouTube or Facebook, it might have been YouTube saying that they would like censor any misinformation about COVID, by which they defined as any information that, that disagrees with the WHO, I think. Or maybe it was the CDC, I can't remember. But it was somebody that had been clearly wrong in the past. Yes, they don't have and a great it, track record. Yeah, and it's just so alarmed me that like, is this the standard that we're using as a society or like at least these large companies for what counts as misinformation is anything that disagrees with this body? So that I found that very alarming. And so on the one hand, I'm saying this, the, the problem of polarization and misinformation online seems like a very big problem, but also the solutions seem bad to me too. Well, you so can't de-platform people too, because then you find a group of people will just go to a new platform and then it becomes just a bigger echo chamber. And so- Yeah, I mean, that's also an imperfect solution. I yeah. agree. So there, there um, yeah. Yeah, sorry to be pessimistic, but you asked no. for my concern. So, so then, so, so I, that, that was part of the question. I'll go, what does the optimist in you say? Well, I guess a couple things. For one thing, I feel very gratified that there there seem to be a lot of people who are enthusiastic about not necessarily scout mindset in particular, like maybe they've never heard of me or my book, but you know the, the kinds of principles that I'm talking about. I think there's like a substantial minority of the world who like agrees that these are important values and wants to try to be a better scout themselves. And I, I think that is an important fact and that's often easily lost when people just bemoan in general the fact that humans are biased and tribal and like, yes, that's true. But there's this like huge significant exception that a lot of people actually want to try to overcome that and be more intellectually honest and open-minded. So that makes me optimistic. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. And then also I'll say that social media has 
these unfortunate downsides that we've talked about, but it also has the upside that it makes it much easier to kind of find or create a tribe for yourself online full of other people who really prize scout mindset and will praise you if you say you've changed your mind about something or will praise you if you say like, actually, I think the, the other side had a good point. And that's something that for most people, it's hard to find that tribe in their everyday lives just because those people aren't, they're kind of like scattered, but the internet has made it possible to actually, for those people to find each other. And I think that's really important because being embedded in a community, or like whatever community you're embedded in, like strongly determines your values and your thinking habits. And so being able to surround yourself with more people who want to be better scouts can make it much easier for you to cultivate that habit as well. Well, I'm optimistic because one, you wrote a book on it. We're talking about it. I feel like this is a subject of Bill Maher like every week on his show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should get on there. But like, I think a big first step is we're having the conversation that a lot of people are aware that our current dialogue is not where it needs to be. And we need to get better collectively to heal. I think everyone would agree the country, the world needs healing. We've all been through a lot yeah. and, and we need healing. And the question is, how, how do we get there without killing each other? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julia, thanks so much. I love the book. Oh, my pleasure. An Thank you so book. much for having me. Uh, important book and everyone pick it up.